Welcome to Shortcut to Slim, a research-based podcast on dieting and nutrition brought to you by GetMealPlans.com. I'm your host, Lindsay S. Nixon, and in this episode, we're learning about environmental stimulants, hidden persuaders that make you overeat, plus easy ways you can re-engineer your surroundings to stop the overeating signals that hijack your hunger. In episode six, I discussed Dr. Panda's theory that artificial light led to an artificial extension of our feeding times, which he believes is a contributing cause to obesity and diabetes. There's plenty of correlation and regression analysis, as well as qualitative human research and my studies that support Dr. Panda's theories. You'll have to listen to episode six for the full scoop, but even if, for argument's sake, light bulbs and subsequent delayed feeding times were or are a contributing cause to our obesity problem, the fix seems easy enough. Eat sooner. And batch cooking your meal plan meals on the weekend can definitely help with that. But accepting or even just considering Dr. Panda's lights theory, that opens up an even bigger can of worms. What else in our environment is a contributing cause to obesity? How much you eat every day is largely determined by your surroundings. We're nudged far more by our eating environment than by our deliberate choices. Subtle influences like friends and family, names, number, colors, shapes, smells, labels, packages, plates, and yes, lights too, can all make us overeat. And although I buy into the whole knowledge is power thing, and I still think it's incredibly important to understand the underlying science of the how and the why, that's why this podcast exists, I don't think education or knowledge by itself is all that effective. I see this every day with our members. They have the education. They know exactly what they need to do and why but it's not happening. They know an apple is better than a bag of potato chips, but they eat the potato chips anyway. They're failing with their follow through. And I was in this boat too. I still am in some ways because I still live in the real world and not a bubble. Point is, while it's great to understand nutrition and science, real lasting weight loss comes primarily from behavior modification and environmental changes that can help you make better choices without thinking about them. What signals us to eat, eat, eat has been the study and life work of Brian Wansink, PhD. If the name sounds familiar, it's because I pretty much fangirl out on him in every episode of this podcast. And although I have a relationship with him and he probably doesn't even know I exist, I'm going to be calling him by his first name, Brian, for the remainder of this episode because like Zing Zeko in the last one, his last name is just too hard for my mouth. Anyway. Wansink's research, Brian, I mean, Brian's research shows us how all these seemingly innocuous things like light bulbs make us overeat, which I admit is pretty depressing. But it's also hugely empowering when you realize that the smallest change, like not leaving cereal out on the counter, can make us lose 21 pounds, or at the very least, can set us up to be, quote, naturally thin. You might remember from episode five when I talked about these naturally skinny people, that they don't actually have a higher metabolism, that some have higher need, you know, little movements like twitching that 
burn more calories, but mostly they just restrict their eating to some degree and we don't see it. Brian's research adds to this. In fact, Brian and his whole team have an expression in their lab, quote, if you want to be skinny, do what skinny people do. But before I dig into Brian's research further, I have to share something. I'd written this episode several weeks ago, long before The Biggest Loser article came out. I figured, no biggie, I'll slide this episode down, do The Biggest Loser article, and then proceed as planned. I was all set to record when I realized I was missing a quote, so I opened up my copy of Slim by Design, and my eyes caught two words, Biggest Loser in the introduction. Now here's where I admit I never read the introduction in books because I lack patience, so I hadn't caught this before. Anyway, the stars aligned, wait until you hear this. Brian opens the book. One sentence summarizes 25 years of my research. Becoming slim by design works better than trying to become slim by willpower. That is, it's easier to change your eating environment than to change your mind. While there are many solutions to mindless eating, most of them will go undiscovered because we don't look for them. Instead, we're too focused on the food and not our surroundings. We're too focused on eating less of one thing, more of another thing, or launching into the new yeast and potting soil diet we read about on the internet. I recently spoke at a convention in Washington, D.C., along with the winner of the TV show, The Biggest Loser. During his season, he'd weighed in at over 400 pounds and weighed out at half of that. During this over-the-top drama, he lost half his weight. 200 pounds by visualizing, sweating, and starving himself thin. Fun times. After our speeches, we grabbed a speedy buffet lunch before heading to the airport. He's a funny, positive, interesting guy, so it seems strange that he'd sometimes stop his animated conversation in mid-sentence to say things like, hey, did you notice that I picked out the smallest piece of chicken? Or look, I didn't take any bread. After a while, it became clear that he wasn't making these comments for me. He was making them for himself. He was reminding himself that he was full-time willpower man. But it took so much concentration that each time he made the right choice, he wanted to announce it. I told him I was doubly impressed with his willpower around food because I have none. For me, an all-you-can-eat buffet is an eat-all-they've-got buffet. So instead of relying on willpower, I have to change my eating environment so it helps me eat less. I take the smallest plate, serve myself salad first, and so on. Easy actions that help me eat less. He changed his mind. I changed my eating environment. And to think, I was genuinely worried how I was going to string these episodes together. The heart of this episode is what I think the Biggest Loser article wanted to say, the whole it's not your fault, but I have the actual science. That is, obesity is not caused purely by inactivity, bread, rice, gluttony, weak willpower, or a bad childhood. It's caused by overeating, mindless eating, and a tsunami of unhealthy or maybe not unhealthy but unaware triggers that make us eat, 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 eat. So let's start with weak willpower. Quoting Brian, willpower alone won't conquer bad eating habits for 90% of us. Fortunately, there are a lot of small, innovative, and proven solutions from behavioral economics and psychology that will help us become more slim by design. 
If you've been a member of Meal Mentor for any amount of time, you've undoubtedly heard me bash willpower. Dozens of times I've bashed willpower. And I get that from Brian. He's right though, our willpower is too wimpy. The solution is to make changes that don't require willpower at all. One of my strategies that I teach as part of the Slim Team training program is to create a rule. I do or I do not. Having a rule bypasses the need for willpower altogether. The decision is already made. You know exactly where you stand on an issue. Most of us have implemented a lot of rules successfully in our lives already. Matrimony, for example, or veganism for a lot of my listeners. Restaurants, supermarkets, workplaces, and even our own homes have made it so easy for us to overeat. You're probably nodding along thinking about giant servings at restaurants or how candy bars are oh so conveniently located at hand level in the checkout line, and that's all true. But it doesn't stop there. Hidden persuaders, cues that cause you to overeat, are everywhere. And most of these clues short-circuit your hunger and taste signals, which means you'll eat even if you're not actually hungry or the food doesn't taste very good. Your brain is completely hijacked. Brian explains it like this. We believe our eyes, not our stomachs. Short of eating until it hurts, most of us rely on some kind of an external clue to tell us we've had enough. And can you guess what the most popular, most common sensory feedback clue is? A clean plate or an empty bowl or empty bag. Eat until it's all gone. My two favorite studies that illustrate this point were Brian's popcorn study and soup bowl study. In the popcorn study, Brian and his team gave a bunch of people going to the movies five-day-old stale popcorn. It was so stale that it squeaked if you ate it. Now, the people going to the movies didn't know it was stale initially, only that it was free. And everyone got their own bucket to make sure there would be no sharing. Although, some people got a medium bucket and some got a large bucket. Now, you'd think after a handful or two, these moviegoers would realize that this was five-day-old stale popcorn, and they would stop eating it. But they didn't. Throughout the entire movie, they would eat a few handfuls, put it down, and then pick it up a few months later. Brian says the popcorn clearly wasn't good enough to eat all at once, but they also couldn't help themselves. Here's the even crazier thing. Those people with the larger buckets ate 53% more. That is roughly the equivalent of sticking your hand in 21 more times for five-day-old popcorn. Brian then ran this kind of a study in a lot of other cities with a lot of different kind of competing variables, but the results were always the same. People eat more when you give them a bigger container. It didn't matter if the popcorn was fresh or 14 days old or the movie people were hungry or they just had lunch before the movie. Brian writes, did people eat because they liked popcorn? No. Did they eat because they were hungry? No. They ate because all the cues around them, not only the size of the popcorn bucket, but also other factors such as the sound of other people eating popcorn and eating scripts we take to the movies with us and so on. 
Brian explains why we like to do this by using the analogy of a jogger. He says, if a jogger decides to jog on a treadmill until she's tired, she constantly has to ask herself, am I tired yet? Am I tired yet? Am I tired yet? Am I tired yet? But if she says, I'm going to jog to the school and back, she doesn't have to constantly monitor how tired she is. She sets the target and jogs until she's done. Considering we make some 200 decisions about food per day, it's no wonder our brains take this jogger mentality with food. A clean plate or an empty bowl is our food finish line. We can dish it out, space out, and eat until it's gone. Realizing just how powerful this clean your plate notion is, Brian decided to test it with a bottomless soup bowl. The subjects didn't know the soup bowl was bottomless. Unbeknownst to them, the soup bowl automatically refilled itself, but at such a slow rate that the people eating the soup would still believe they were making progress, even though the bowl never completely emptied. They also sat at a table with other people who didn't have a bottomless soup bowl so they could see a perceived end. After 20 minutes, all of the subjects were asked questions, which made them all stop eating. Those with the bottomless bowls ate 73% more, which amounted to a quart, a quart more of soup. Here's the most shocking part, though. When asked how many calories they ate, they estimated the same as the normal bowl people. Both groups underestimated. The normal bowl folks estimated they ate about 127 calories, when in reality it was 155. The bottomless folks also estimated about 127 calories, but in reality, they ate 268 calories. This is a true testament about how much our stomachs suck at math. Brian then conducted other studies with similar results. I especially liked the one dealing with chicken wings. In the chicken wing study, the waitress left the bones, the discarded bones, on some tables while other tables were constantly bust clean. No big surprise that the people with the bust tables ate more wings. Now that this is all a little depressing, I have some good news. One strategy that's helped me overcome my overeating is maintaining a food log. Not just for accountability, but for when I'm feeling hungry and I know I probably shouldn't be. I'll take a look at my log to remind myself what I've just eaten or I've eaten all day. Oh, look, I just had this really big healthy meal, so I can't possibly be biologically hungry. What else is going on? Is something happening with me emotionally? Another tip Brian suggests is pre-plating your food. That is, putting everything you want to eat on your plate before you start eating. Brian says, we find that when people pre-plate their food, they eat about 14% less than when they take smaller amounts and go back for seconds or thirds. Now for the big stinky caveat that pops up in every episode. While seeing your food helps you eat less, it can also make you eat more. For example, Brian's research shows that the average woman who keeps potato chips on the counter weighs eight pounds more than her neighbor who doesn't. And this makes sense. Chips are irresistibly tempting and you can't eat just one. And I think we can all agree that potato chips make you fat, but chips aren't the most dangerous food we can have out. Can you guess what that food is? Breakfast cereal. 
Brian's research shows that if you have even one open box of breakfast cereal anywhere in sight, you'll weigh 21 more pounds than your neighbor who doesn't. Why? Well, Brian says, it's the first thing you see when you walk in. There it is, this yummy, convenient food. And taking a break from Wansing's research, but remembering our research from the previous episodes on the theory of cooking, cereal was there too, and the mice that ate those puffed pellets gained way more weight than those that didn't. So I'm really starting to wonder about breakfast cereal. Maybe that'll be the next episode. Anyway, circling back to the stale popcorn study, you'll remember that the bigger the bucket, the more stale popcorn people ate. Brian and his team saw the exact same results with different foods, including foods people had to prepare themselves like spaghetti. In the spaghetti study, for example, people who were given the larger package of pasta, the larger sauce, and the largest amount of meat typically prepared 23% more, 150 extra calories, than those that were given the medium-sized packages. Brian and his team concluded that the bigger the package, the more people serve themselves, and the more you serve yourself, the more you eat. In fact, their research says 92% of what you serve yourself is what you eat. And this didn't matter what the food was, popcorn, dry spaghetti, or M&Ms. If it came from a bigger or larger package, you're going to eat 20 to 25% more. The M&M study was especially dramatic. People who were given a half pound ate an average of 71 M&Ms during a one-hour film, while those who were given the one-pound bag ate an average of 137 M&Ms, almost twice as many, 264 more calories. Brian conducted this study with 47 different items, by the way, including non-food items like shampoo, laundry detergent, and pet kibble. And it was always the same result. The bigger the package, the more people used, poured, or consumed. But there was one exception. Liquid bleach. People didn't overpour that. So why does this happen? Brian says we look for clues and signals that tell us how much to eat or to use. One of those signals is the size of the package it's coming from. We use that as a sort of baseline to figure out what is an appropriate amount by comparison, by percentage of the original size, even if it's jumbo. If it's any comfort, even professionals are tripped up by these optical illusions professional veteran bartenders, for example, were unable to pour a standard 1.5 ounce shot of alcohol straight out of the bottle. And nutrition PhD students bombed too with ice cream. The students who eat, sleep, lecture, and study nutrition totally, totally were tripped up by the size of the bowl or the serving scoop. The bigger the bowl or the bigger the ice cream soup, the more they serve themselves. Here's a data point from another one of Brian's studies. People sitting within two tables of a bar drink an average of three more beers or drinks per table than those sitting even one table further away. Brian isn't ready to draw any conclusions about this yet, but he thinks that just by sitting next to the bar, it makes it more normal to order a second drink because you are seeing so many more drinks made and poured. So what does all this mean? Do we have to forfeit our Costco membership? Not quite. This is the lesson. Number one, never eat directly out of a package or box. Put your snacks in a separate dish. Number two, if you are going to buy the jumbo size, repackage it into smaller containers when you get home. 
Number three, for the love of kale, use small plates, small bowls, small spoons, all of the small things. One last warning note about shopping at places like Costco. You'll not only serve more out of the jumbo containers, you'll also eat what you buy there at twice the normal rate within the first week. This is especially true for easy consumable foods like cookies, crackers, juices, and microwave popcorn. In one of Brian's studies, people who fill their cupboards with chips and juices and ramen from places like Costco, they ate half of everything they bought within the first week. So number four, if you buy 200 of something, put three or four in the pantry and leave the rest in the basement. And if you're starting to think that an empty kitchen is the solution, you can't booby trap yourself if it's empty. Emptiness is its own booby trapped. Empty kitchens make you fat because they cause you to overeat elsewhere. Bottom line, insight is in stomach. Make the most visible foods those that you want to be eating, whether it's your meal plan meals in clear containers front and center in the fridge or apples in a bowl on the counter, in sight, in your mouth. As for foods you're trying to limit or avoid, put them where you don't see them. In the cupboard, yes, but you can also take it one step further and put them further back in the cupboard because another one of Brian's studies says that you're three times more likely to eat the first food you see than the fifth food. And one of his other really cool tips is wrapping things in tinfoil because apparently that's a major turnoff. Anyway, there's so many wonderful tips in Brian's book that I could talk about them all day and night, and you should definitely check out his books, Mindless Eating and Slim by Design. Another tip that really has stayed with me and changed my life is not having food on the dinner table. That's made such a difference with my overeating. Brian's research is always a constant reminder and explanation, too, why the meal plans have worked so well for me and for the other members. The portions are already decided for you. You don't have to guess or eyeball or risk falling victim to external clues that force you to overeat or overserve yourself. Pre-portioning your servings helps you create boundaries, but it also helps boost your satisfaction. It's so amazing to read about these studies and learn how even things like food color can make you overeat or leave you not feeling satisfied, which is something we've been taking more into consideration when building the meal plan meals. Anyway, to close out this episode and sort of string it back with the previous ones, we know a calorie is not a calorie, and changing what you're eating can definitely help you along, just like it's a lot easier to run a marathon if you quit smoking first, but having a perfect diet works best when it's paired with behavior modification and appropriate environmental changes like portion control. My overeating episode is definitely a testament to all this. The perfect diet is the diet you don't know you're on. As Brian says, make it easy on yourself so you make good choices without thinking. So you make healthy decisions when you're on autopilot. You've been listening to Shortcut to Slim, brought to you by GetMealPlans.com. Download your free research-based seven-day meal plan at GetMealPlans.com and leave the guesswork and science to me. I'm your host, Lindsay S. Nixon, and I'll be back next week.